gospel lesson this morning comes from Matthew chapter 9. Verses 1 through 13. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on his bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sons are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise. Take up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he sat at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. If you need a copy of this uh, sermon message today, I do have copies of it now. Every year at charge conference, I have to prepare a lay leader's report. This usually tells a DS about the changes we've seen in the church over the year, any additions to the congregation, as well as subtractions, those who have moved or passed on. As a church that seems to change pastors more often than most, this can be both a happy and a sad task. It seems I'm always starting my report with the line, we are a church in transition. I'm not the only one who has to file a report, we also hear from the trustees, SPRC and finance committees. But one of the more interesting parts is when they ask about our personal growth, services we've led, visitations to other parishioners, any other related work in the life of the church. And then they ask what books we've read. 
for this abhorrent behavior. But I also like social justice books, and my most recent library editions look to the immorality of racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, and other forms of intolerance. I suppose I'm looking for explanations for that behavior as well. When I'm looking for divine inspiration, I have seen movies like an oldie but goodie called The Next Voice You Hear, or read some books that are seeking a greater understanding of God. One of the most moving ones I've read and talked about here in the last few years is called The Shack, which examines how a man gets to spend time with God after his young daughter is kidnapped and murdered with a family he seeks answers to this question. How could loving God let such a horrible thing happen to a child? Could a novel really answer the age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people? I believe that question is unanswerable for many, if not most of us. Whether it's movies or books, I think we spend a lot of time, perhaps unknowingly, Seeking out of God fulfills our needs. Now you may have noticed today's scripture readings were wildly different. From Genesis, we have the story of an angry God who decided to destroy the world and save Noah, his family, and two of every kind of creature. But from Matthew comes the story of a loving Jesus who communed with people who were on the margins of society. His teachings were about loving those neighbors, even the ones not accepting and not acceptable to polite society. Now with these two views in mind, I ask you, what kind of God do we want? As Christians, we know what we're supposed to say. We want the all-loving, all benevolent and all knowing and forgiving God. We saw how some of those people in the Old Testament met God's wrath when they disobeyed. We don't want that for ourselves. But do we want it for others? This morning, as we mentioned, there was a tree planting ceremony here in Westbrook honoring the lives of David Green and Ramona Cooper residents who were murdered by a white supremacist this day last year. This brutal act of violence shook many people to their core. Residents gathered in the aftermath of the killing to disavow this man's hateful actions. They proclaimed, this is not who we are. And if you ignore previous racial incidents,
that have happened here in years past, you can make yourself believe that. Now, as Christians, we want to believe that the two people murdered because they were black have found their way into the loving arms of God. Do we wish the same for the perpetrator who also died that day? Or are we secretly, or maybe not so secretly, hoping for hellfire and damnation, Old Testament style? Did this man, so filled with hate that he executed two strangers, also find his way into God's loving arms? We have to ask ourselves, what kind of God do we really want and under what circumstances? Is God's salvation only for the innocent? I recently finished a book that turns a lot of what we grew up believing on its head. It was just as intriguing as the shack, but this is a claiming to be a novel. And many of you, I must warn you, may find it blasphemous. It's called Jesus, My Autobiography. Now my first question when I was told about it was, who wrote it? And then I laughed because it's an autobiography. But the author is Tina Louise Spaulding, who says she channeled Jesus and wrote down his message. Even if you dismiss this new age notion or think of it as heretical, it is worth taking a look for the inspiration it can give us. For one thing, Jesus, as channeled by Ms. Spaulding, tells us that much of the Bible's message about him is wrong, beginning with what we've always learned was the miracle of his birth. In this story, Jesus says his mother was visited by what we would call an archangel who told her she would give birth to a child who would bring light to the world. This tracks so far. But in this tale, Jesus says his parents were already married and Joseph was his biological father. Mary and Joseph go on to have more children after Jesus who was raised with his siblings. He says he was a rebellious teenager, a wandering young man, who went to far lands, including India, where he learned meditation as part of his enlightenment, and eventually found his way back home, where he re reunited with Mary Magdalene, whom he married. And in this story, he said, he began to teach, as was his purpose and his calling, although he didn't teach the way the established church leaders did. Because he went against church teachings, he said when his story was recorded long after he had transitioned from his earthly body, the radical revolution he preached about was edited, retold, and misinterpreted. Think of it as the old telephone game where some pieces of truth survive, but some of the messages and parables get lost in translation over the centuries of retelling. In this story, Jesus had a purpose, to teach us about the spirit we call by many names, including God. His message says, we are all divine, we are all equal, and we can all
each other and forgiveness. This story of Jesus talked about his travels to many lands and his adventures in those years that aren't covered in our New Testament lessons. We tend to go almost from the story birth in a manger to his early adolescence in the temple to suddenly his three-year ministry ending with his death and resurrection, his sacrificial death that supposedly saved us from our sins. But although this story says he was crucified and returned, his death wasn't about sin or sacrifice. It was about the enlightenment that comes with the knowledge that death is only the death of the body. Our spirit lives on. He tells us much of his story, and even the stories in the Old Testament were edited to conform to the powerful leaders, the Romans or the Pharisees, the ones who ruled the people of the day. The God of the Old Testament was angry. That was the kind of God the scribes used to control the masses, Jesus tells us in this tale. He says when his teachings rebelled against the status quo, they were edited out. We already know that when King James reinterpreted the Bible, he eliminated certain passages that didn't conform to his personal belief about disobeying authorities. But what if he wasn't the only one? What if the book we've grown to see as the word of God is the word of powerful men who were more inspired by maintaining the patriarchy and use the trials and tribulations of the time to keep people frightened. What if God really isn't the angry, vengeful being who would strike down his people for disobeying the rule makers of the day? I must admit, this was pretty heavy stuff for me. We've all grown up thinking God, that God was love, but that God was also fire and brimstone, hell and damnation. We have rested in the hope that people who do evil here on earth will be properly punished when they no longer are on this plane. We haven't always been taught that Jesus views all people as equal, no matter their gender or orientation or identity or color. We say we believe it, so I ask, is that the kind of God we want? The one who loves us all, who believes in us all, who forgives us all? Last year, we became a part of the Reconciling Ministries of the United Methodist Church. We affirm that all people, no matter their race, gender, sexual identity, or orientation, are fully part of our Christian community and worthy of grace and inclusion. It was a proud moment for me. The vote was overwhelming, but it was not unanimous. What kind of God do we want? In Jesus, my autobiography, we see a man who married, had children, traveled with his friends, told parables to explain his purpose, which was to bring the Spirit's loving message to his people. 
He tells us his death and return illustrated that there is more to heaven and earth than what we have been taught to believe, that sacrifice and suffering isn't necessary for any of us. And this story says many of the stories we grow to love as miracles to perform came about as people healed, as they gave enlightenment. As I've said, this is pretty heavy, heavy stuff and heady stuff. And reading it requires one to suspend some of the beliefs we've had for generations and not feel the defensiveness that comes when our long-held beliefs are questioned. The one question we should keep asking ourselves as we see the world around us changing, and much of it not for the better, as we see the powers that be working so hard to subjugate its people the way the old guard did 2,000 plus years ago, we need to look at who we are now, how we worship, and who is being excluded. And as we've seen religion used to oppress and hurt people who are different from the status quo, we have to start wondering if the God we worship is the kind of God we want. Do we want the kind of God who looks down on the same people we look down on? Do we want the God who believes that some people are born better than others because they are the dominant race, religion, gender, or sexual orientation? Do we want the kind of God who holds the same resentments we do, the same judgments against others? In short, we want the kind of God who is mean as we are? Do we want a vengeful God or a loving God? And if, if, if it's the latter, what can we do to make that happen for all of us? Because if we don't decide the kind of God we want to follow, just might get the God 